There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, we have the privilege of having a brief Bible study together. Now, each Saturday, we are offering on the weekend pulpit a full-length Bible message that's been given recently in some local church or gospel event. And my prayer is that God will use the Word of God to encourage you in a very special way today. This particular series of messages is very special and dear to my heart because it comes from my life book, the book of Philippians, the book of Christian joy, where the Lord says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. And the Lord used these Bible messages to help us all learn to enjoy the journey. Well, I want you to open the Word of God with me, if you will, tonight to the book of Philippians. To Philippians chapter number 1. And uh, I'm so excited to be with your church and love preaching God's Word anywhere, but I am especially excited about what I believe God has led me to do in this particular meeting. When I go to a church, I, I stopped asking the Lord, which of my sermons do you want me to preach? Because I figured out people don't need my sermons, they need the Word of God. So when I go to a church, I really pray that God will guide me to the Scripture He wants us to be in. See, I believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. The preacher doesn't meet the need. God meets the need through His Word by His Spirit. And so as I prayed for your church and prayed for this meeting, I believe God has led me to this particular book of the Bible. It happens to be my favorite book. And I said to your pastor, if God doesn't change my mind, I'm going to preach the entire meeting out of the book of Philippians. And though it is my favorite book of the Bible and I've spent a lot of time in it personally, I've not preached from it a great deal. And so I'm excited to get to preach to you from this portion of Scripture uh, over the next few days. And I want to challenge you to do something. I'd like to ask you to read through the book of Philippians with me, not while I'm preaching, but on your own. And we're going to read through it as we study. But I'm going to ask you in your family devotions, your personal time with God, uh, to read the book of Philippians, and I'm going to challenge you to start that tonight. So before you go to bed tonight and before the Lord's Day, before you come back tomorrow morning, read through Philippians chapter number 1 and pray under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I, I don't know about you, but even as I read these words, can't you hear the tender tone of the Apostle Paul? As a matter of fact, some people have called this a love letter. He's writing to friends. He's writing to people that he has a great deal of affection for. And yet I would remind you that behind, or maybe we should say beneath the tenderness of the Apostle Paul, is actually a revelation of the tenderness of God who loves his people, who wants the very best for his local church, who wants the people of God to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I like your theme for this year, and I'm going to show you in just a moment how that's God's will for every local assembly. 
Before we go any further, let me just show you something. Did you all see all of the, the couples, the, the twos that are linked together here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Look at it just a moment. Look at verse number one. There are two servants, Paul and Timothy. And may I remind you, we need one another. Paul needs Timothy and Timothy needs Paul. That's what a church is all about. That's why generations within the church need one another. The younger generation needs the wisdom of an older generation. And the older generation needs a younger generation to pour into. So we need one another. So you've got two servants. Then look at it again. You've got two locations. Did you notice the two locations? He said, I'm writing to all the saints, notice where they are, in Christ Jesus at Philippi. <laughs> so somebody says, well, where are they? They're in both places at the same time. It is their spiritual location and their geographical location. I like that. In other words, Paul was not in Philippi, but he was writing to people that were in Philippi, and yet at the same moment, Paul and those believers were actually both seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. As an evangelist traveling every week of my life in a different geographical location, this has been a great encouragement to me because it's reminded me that no matter where I happen to wake up tomorrow, and there are mornings I wake up and think, what state am I in today? But no matter where I am geographically, spiritually, I'm always in the same place. I am seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in heavenly places. That, my friends, is a thrilling thing. And let me just say this as a footnote before I go on. Your circumstances might change, but your standing in Christ does not. You are in Christ Jesus regardless of where you happen to be at at this present moment. Then look at it again. There are two offices in the local church. He said, with the bishops and deacons. I grew up in a pastor's home. Now, this word bishop is another word for pastor and uh, elder. It's the overseer. It is the one who leads and feeds in a local church. And I, I want to pause and just say, I thank the Lord for faithful pastors. Now, I'm not a pastor. I helped a pastor for nearly two decades and grew up in a preacher's home. Uh, but my, my ministry, by and large, is to come alongside pastors and try to encourage them and help them. And I'm going to tell you, the more I travel, the more I admire men who've gone someplace and stayed there preaching the Word of God. And you've got a faithful bishop in this church. Aren't you grateful for that? And you ought to pray for him, and you ought to pray for his family. And then the Bible says, alongside the bishops come the deacons. And who are the deacons? By the way, I'm not going to tell any jokes here. Not at all. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I believe with all of my heart that as surely as God calls bishops, the church chooses deacons, and both are necessary for the local church to be everything God wants it to be. And so these are the servants who come alongside, hold up the arms of the pastor, help the church move forward to the glory of God. And I think you ought to pray for the bishops and for the deacons. And then, notice, please, the two great needs in verse number 2. First of all is grace, and second is peace. Notice the divine order here. we got, we got a world that wants peace without grace. It doesn't work that way. No, you've got to get the grace first if you want the peace. So let's take a survey. How many of you want peace? Then you need grace. You want peace with God? Then you must have the grace of God. You want the peace of God to rule in your heart, then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ must rule in your spirit. I don't know the people in this room, and I don't know the spiritual needs in this room, but I know the need of every one of us is grace and peace. And if we get nothing else this week, I'm going to tell you what I'm praying for. I'm praying God will give us fresh grace and fresh peace. How about that? And then read on. Notice, please, there are two sources. 
little secret here. The two are actually one, in case you didn't know. Look at verse 2. He says, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So somebody says, well, if they're the same, why say both names? I'm glad you ask. Because the Father is the giver and the Son is the deliverer. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So the Father is the one giving every good gift and giving every blessing. But watch this. If He is the giver, Jesus is the means of us receiving the gift. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you wouldn't know the Father. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd never receive any of the Father's good gifts. But, oh, aren't you glad you know the Lord Jesus Christ? What a wonderful Savior He is. And then notice this, there are two things that we have as duties. The Bible says in verse 3, we're to thank God for one another. Then, verse 4, you're to pray for one another. By the way, a little secret, if you'll do the first, you can do the second. See, thanksgiving is always the entry point to prayer. We enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. God inhabits the praises of His people. We're to pray always with all thanksgiving. Why is that? Because when you start praising God, you get on praying ground. And if you say, well, I'm having a hard time with somebody, let me get, give you a little secret. Start thanking God for them, and pretty soon you'll get God's attitude towards them, and then you can pray for them. Two great duties we have to one another. But now having laid that groundwork, I bring you to this, this thought in verse number 4 where he says, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all. I wish I had time to show you each part of this. For example, there is persistence in prayer. He says, Always. In every prayer, there's faithfulness in prayer. In every prayer of mine, that's getting real personal. That's my quiet time. Uh, not my public praying, but my private praying. By the way, we'd do better public praying if we did better private praying. Too many people wait to pray at the church house when the Lord said you should start in your prayer closet. Then he says, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, that's intercessory prayer. Not just praying for your needs or your family or those that you are closest to, but praying for all of those around you. And then he says, for you all making requests with joy. I love that. It's not a burden for me to pray. It's a glorious privilege to pray. But now, why do I bring you to this thought? I want you to do something. In verse 4, I want you to mark the phrase, in every prayer. In every prayer. And then I want you to come across to the end of the chapter, to come to verse number 8. Let's start here. He says, For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And mark the first phrase of verse 9. And this I pray. And by the way, in verse 8, he says, this is what I desire. And in verse 9, he says, this is what I'm praying for. If you want to know what you really want, listen to yourself pray. Because your desires are revealed in your prayer life. And I'll do this. I want you to mark in verse 9 this phrase, and this I pray, and draw a line back across the page to verse number 4 in every prayer. Watch this. He doesn't just say he's praying for them. He tells them how he's praying for them. His prayer is very specific, and he says, I'm going to tell you what I'm praying for you. And I'll, I'll point something else out in case I forget later. What he's praying for them is all spiritual. Fascinating to me, but when you have the average church prayer meeting, 90% of the prayer requests 
gather around physical and material needs. Now, look, I believe God can heal. Do you believe God can heal? Certainly, and I think we ought to pray for the sick, no doubt about it. And I believe the Lord meets material needs, and I think it's fine that we can bring every need into the presence of a holy God. But I want to challenge you to read the prayers of Jesus and the prayers of Paul and the prayers of the New Testament, and you're going to find that no matter how great the physical and material needs were, the prayers were always first about the spiritual realities. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. We need to get back to some real spiritual praying. Matter of fact, isn't it interesting that maybe in nothing else is our carnality more readily recognized than in our prayer life? Listen to yourself pray. We spend most of our time praying for us instead of for others, and then we spend more of our time praying for things instead of for spiritual realities. And Paul says, I'm praying for some definite spiritual things in your life. I want you to do something before I show you this list. We're going to make a prayer list in just a moment. Come straight from Scripture. But I want you to notice a little phrase in verse number 5. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day. And in the margin of your Bible, I want you to write Acts 16. You see, Paul's ministry to the church at Philippi didn't start in his writing this letter, Philippians chapter 1. No, no. It started way back in one of his missionary journeys in Acts chapter number 16. And I'm going to show you something now. Hold on to your, hold on to your place in Philippians 1. Go back with me to Acts 16 for just a moment. And I'm going to show you something that has thrilled my soul. Every good thing begins in prayer. Every good thing. Your pastor told me about the prayer emphasis leading up to this meeting, and I must tell you, it thrills me. I can always tell when I go into a place to preach whether there's been any prayer preparation or not. Sometimes you walk through the door and uh, people say, Hello, who are you and why are you here? That's a revelation. They haven't been praying. It's not about the preaching. It's about the praying. You think the preaching is what's going to bring revival? Look, when we pray, we enter the very presence of Almighty God. And I think if we had better praying we'd get more out of the preaching. Let me prove it to you. Are you in Acts chapter 16? Here's Paul's first entrance, first introduction to the church at Philippi. Actually, there's not even a church there when he shows up, just a town full of lost people that need Jesus. Look at verse 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. That sounds strong, doesn't it? The Holy Ghost said no. The Holy Ghost ever said no to you? And I say to you, when he says no, it's because he has a greater yes. You see, he wanted to go into Asia. God says, no, you're going to go into Europe. Let me just pause right here. This is a princess. This one's for free, all right? I sure am glad he went into Europe. How do you think we got the gospel? Do you know what you're about to read in Philippi was the first convert in all of Europe? Think about that. Acts chapter 16, the first convert in Europe, was in the city of Philippi. And you want a little bit of God's divine humor. Do you know who the first convert was in Europe? A lady from Asia. She's from Thyatira. So think about this. Paul says, I'd like to go reach Asia. And God says, good, you want to reach Asia? Go to Europe. And in Europe, the first Asian convert gets wonderfully saved. Let me tell you something. God's ways are higher than your ways, and they're better than your ways. He knows what he's doing. Just let God work. 
And one of the striking things to me is that Paul was living in the place of prayer himself enough to be in tune with God. So when the Holy Spirit said no, he stopped. And when the Holy Spirit said go, he went. I'm going to tell you, that's what pray without ceasing means. You're in tune with God. May I ask you a personal question? Are you that in tune with God tonight? If the Holy Spirit speaks to you at this moment, puts his finger on something in your heart or your home, are you ready to obey? Because that's the spirit of prayer. Now read on. Come down to verse number 12. They come to Philippi, from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. Now this is where it all starts. <laughs> I love this. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where, what's the next word, church? Prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us. I love this expression, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended unto the things which were spoken to Paul when she was baptized in her household. She besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Now, please don't miss this. This is the first convert in Philippi. This is the seed of the church in the city of Philippi. And where did it start? Did it start with Paul preaching a great sermon? Did it start with him renting a, a building the whole meeting is in? Did it start with some great marketing campaign? No, no. It started in a prayer meeting. Read on, come to verse 16. Here's the second convert in Philippi. And it came to pass as we went to what? Huh. A certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that same hour. By the way, every time the devil gets defeated, he stirs it up again. So they get angry. They throw Paul and Silas in jail. You know where we're going now, right? Are you noticing a pattern at all? At a prayer meeting, a woman is saved. As they go up at the hour of prayer to pray, a girl is delivered. Now come to verse 25. And at midnight. Paul and Silas groaned and complained and whined about their condition. Is that what your Bible says? Good, mine either. And at midnight, Paul and Silas, what? They prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And in the midst of that, God sends a mighty earthquake, and he doesn't just shake the cell doors loose. He shakes an old, stubborn, hard-hearted jailer loose who says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And that jailer and his whole household comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Now go back with that. Go back with that in your mind to Philippians chapter 1. Look at it again. See if it doesn't make more sense. He says in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, make a request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you notice that every good thing that happened in Philippi and every person that was saved was in some way connected to prayer? And I want you to write this down. I'm speaking tonight on where it all starts. This is our starting meeting. 
not just in the book of Philippians, but in this particular meeting, and I'm speaking on where it all starts. Where does the move of God begin? Where does real revival come from? Where does the spiritual awakening begin? Listen to me, church. It always begins in prayer. Always. Every great revival in history, in some way, behind the scenes, Pull the curtain back. Pull the curtain back. Doesn't matter who's out front preaching. Doesn't matter who's leading the music. Doesn't matter about all of that. That's what everybody wants to talk about. That's the up front stuff. Pull the curtain back. And somewhere behind the curtain, there's some saint of God on the knees seeking the Lord in real prayer. There's two elderly women, 84 and 82, on the Isle of Lewis, praying from Midnight till 4 o'clock in the morning, every Thursday night, that brought one of the greatest revivals this world has ever known. The New Hebrides revival grew out of those two women, one of them stone blind, praying through the night, Oh, dear God, visit our island. They said when those elderly women started praying, that the bars were full and the jails were overpopulated and the churches were empty and barely did any young people ever go to church But when those women finished getting a hold of God and revival came, it lasted for three years on the Isle of Lewis. I'm talking about a revival that went on for three years. And they said when it was done, the jails were empty. The bars had closed and the churches were full, and almost everybody on the whole island had made some profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody said, well, tell us, who was the preacher of that revival meeting? I could tell you the man who preached, his name was Duncan Campbell. You know what Duncan Campbell said? Duncan Campbell said, when I showed up on that island, he said something was going on. He said, I'd never seen it before. And he said, it wasn't my sermons. He said, in fact, I was overwhelmed with it. He said, God was on the move. Do you know where it started? It starts where it always starts. It begins with real prayer to a God who still hears and answers prayer. And you've been praying, you've been praying around the clock, and you've been praying for weeks for a move of God. And we want to begin this meeting tonight in prayer. Why? Because we must have what only God can do. And this I pray, Paul says. Let's make the list. Go to verse number 9. He prays for three basic things. In verse 9, he says, In this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Would you write this down? Number one, he begins by praying for inward growth. Do you notice he doesn't pray for outer things? I'm talking about the things we like to measure. He prays for the things only God can see. Now, by the way, what's on the inside is going to come out, and you're going to see that in just a moment. You can't hide what God's doing on the inside. See, look, you can't can't duplicate a revival. You can't scheme a revival, plan a revival, promote a revival. God must bring the revival. But if it comes, you can't hide it. You can't hype it, and you can't hide it. It comes from God. God changes everything. But notice it begins on the inside. You know, we dress up pretty good for church, don't we? And we come in and we carry our Bibles and we sing our hymns and we say our amens. And by the way, I'm for all of that. And I love that kind of reverence. But I'm afraid if we're not careful, we become people so mechanical going through the motions of church and we miss God's reality in the inner man. Paul says to this organized church down in Philippi, I want you to pray. Look at verse 9, that your love 
Why would he say love first? Galatians chapter 5, you have that list of the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first thing on the list? Anybody remember? Hmm, that's interesting. Some Bible teachers even believe that love is the whole fruit and everything else just grows out of that. Matter of fact, the Bible says that charity is the bond of perfectness. 1 Corinthians 13 says there are three abiding graces, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. You know why that is? Because the other two will end. Faith will end in sight and hope will end in reality, but love will never end. Because when we leave this world, we're going to live with love. Because love's not a thing, it's a person, it's God himself. So when the Bible says he wants you to grow in the love of God, he wants you to grow in a deeper intimacy to God himself. This is not just something being nicer to people. Oh, I think you get right with God, you will be nicer to people. But it doesn't start with them, it starts with him. There's an inner growth here that begins with love. And look at it carefully. That your love may abound. The word literally means to overflow. <laughs> like, like the waters jump the banks now. Can I ask you, are you living an abounding Christian life? I didn't ask, are you living a Christian life? You're here on a Saturday night in church. I got a pretty good idea you're trying to live the Christian life. But I ask, are you living an abounding Christian life? You know, I think we settle for so much less than what God has for us. Somebody asked me recently, what's something you see that concerns you in and out of churches? And I said, without hesitation, low expectations. Low expectations. And that's not just true for church corporately. That's true for the Christian life individually and personally. We're doing enough to get by, and we're better than most, and that's good enough. And I want you to know that there is a God who has much more for us. Ephesians 3 verse 20 says that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or even think according to His power that works inside of us. That's the abounding life. Read on. He says that your love may abound yet, notice this expression, more and more. That's powerful. Can I tell you, sin's way, the world's way, the devil's way is always less and less. You get a little pleasure up front, and it's all downhill from there. Because with the Lord, He always saves the best wine for last, you remember. It's always more and more. The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth what? More and more. Same expression. Under the perfect day. Oh, dear Lord, I want this in my own life. May my love abound yet more and more. Now watch it, in knowledge and in all judgment. It says this love is not just some emotionalism, some sentimentality, some, some ooey-gooey, warm, fuzzy feeling. Some people, they want to go to church just to feel better. Friend, God doesn't want you just to feel better. He wants you to be more like Jesus. And His love is full of knowledge and discretion. His love is full of judgment. There's a discernment here. There's a wisdom here. What's going on? God is rooting out of you everything that shouldn't be there and putting in you everything that should be. I was preaching in southwest Florida, southeast Florida, a few months ago. We were having a sweet meeting, and the church I was preaching in, I was standing in the lobby of the church one night after church, and folks were coming out and speaking, and an elderly woman came out. She was, up in years, very, very well-dressed and very articulate woman. She thanked me for the message. She said, God's really speaking to me. And she said something to me. This was her way of saying it. She said, Preacher, I want you to know that for the last few months, I've been praying for something. She said, I've been praying for a Holy Ghost revival. 
That's the way she said it, a Holy Ghost revival. And I said to her, amen, sister. Keep praying for that. I want that. She turned and walked away. She took about three steps, and she stopped. She turned around and came back to me. And she said, preacher, could I ask you a question? I said, certainly. She said, what does that look like? Stunned me. And I said to her, that's a great question. You know, we preachers, we like to think we have all the answers. You know that, right? And I didn't have an answer. Oh, I've studied revivals and preached on revival, and I could have given her some list of things. But at that moment, her question just, it captured me. What does that look like? Holy Ghost revival. If real revival came to Savannah, if, if revival came to your church, like I'm talking about if God invaded this community and really did His work in our hearts and homes, what would that look like? Does that just mean the building's full? No, I, I don't think so. I like to see lots of people coming to the house of God, but I'll remind you the devil can get a crowd. Somebody says, well, we'd have great preaching and great singing. Well, friends, you can have that and God not be anywhere around it. People just doing their thing. And somebody says, I know what happened. A bunch of lost people get saved. Well, I think if real revival comes, evangelism grows out of that and lost people are saved. But I'll remind you that revival is not everybody else getting right with God. It's us getting right with God. Isn't it funny when people say they want revival, what they really mean is they want everybody else to get right. Like, don't mess with me. Leave me alone. So I started thinking and praying about her question. I was praying one night, just talking to the Lord, praying for revival. I couldn't get her question out of my mind. While I was talking to the Lord about it, the Lord answered my question, answered her question. The Holy Spirit said to me, do you know what a Holy Ghost revival looks like? It looks like Jesus. That's what it looks like. Watch this, please. What's the Holy Ghost work in this world? It's to lift up Jesus. What did he come to do to glorify Jesus? What's he working in us to do to form in us the image of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you what a Holy Ghost revival looks like. You ready for this? God will work to get everything out of you that doesn't look like Jesus and put everything in you that does look like Jesus. And I'll tell you, when all is said and done, people won't talk about the preacher and they won't talk about themselves. What they'll talk about is Jesus because that's what the Holy Ghost loves to talk about. And it begins with His inner work in us. Look at verse number 10. Here's the second thing. Here's where it all starts. It starts with a prayer for the inward growth, and then it begins and starts with a prayer for outward growth. Now, notice the divine progression here. In verse number 9, there's the love. That's, that's the heart word. That's way down deep inside where nobody goes but you and God. But when you come to verse 10, it's coming out on the way you live, that ye may approve things that are excellent, literally the best. Can I tell you something about God? God's not a mediocre God. No, no, He is the best. He's above and beyond. He's the preeminent one. And when He has His rightful place in our lives, guess what He produces? The best. And you don't live just good enough to get by. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I meet people everywhere I go. Excuse me. Christians are a dime a dozen in America. Where I live in West Virginia, everybody's been saved. I mean everybody. Everybody's grandma's a preacher. Everybody belongs to three churches. Everybody's been baptized four times. And I want to say, where's God in all of this? 
Because, see, when the Lord comes in, friends, He changes things. Pardon me, but He doesn't rent. He buys. And He doesn't move in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. He moves in to stay. And when He moves in, He brings His own furniture. He didn't want your old couch and nasty junk. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And if that's not happening in us, something's wrong. And we must begin to pray, dear Lord, I want your best for my life. So what do you need to root out of my life? And what do you need to move in my life? Look at the end of verse 10. That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That's quite a prayer right there. Without offense till the day of Christ. Watch this. It's not enough for you to be right with God for a day or two. Paul said, what I'm praying is that you'll stay right with God and get closer to God all the way to the day you see Jesus face to face. Isn't it going to be grand when we see Jesus face to face? By the way, it could be today. You may not have your ninth anniversary in this church. We might celebrate it around the throne of God in heaven. How many of you think that would be all right? And I'll tell you, on the day of Christ, one thing that's going to matter is where we were sincere and without offense. That word sincere is an interesting word. It's a word that is rooted in the sunlight. <laughs> you know, when the sun comes out, all the shadows have to fade. When the sun comes out in all of its fullness and brightness, everything shows up. You know what I mean? God says, I'm going to turn the sunlight on. I'm going to turn the light of my holy presence on your heart, on your mind, on the secret place of your life, on the things nobody sees, on the things you forgot about long ago. I'm going to turn the sunlight on, and I'm going to reveal myself to you, and I'm going to reveal you to you. By the way, that's painful. F.B. Meyer likened this word sincere, this light, to an x-ray machine. (laughs) It's like, excuse me, coming through God's divine x-ray. Funny how things show up on the x-ray that don't show up on the outside, isn't it? And watch this. When you get under the light, when you get under the light of God, God shows you things you didn't even know were there. Oh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the answer to that is only God does. But God does know. And God, by His Holy Spirit, begins to put His finger on things in our life that aren't excellent, that that aren't sincere, that aren't without offense. And He says, let's get rid of all of that. It's a prayer for outward growth. And then watch the progression as it culminates in verse 11, being filled. (laughs) See, God doesn't just empty you. He fills you. He doesn't just take out, he puts in, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Watch this, please. Oh, I like it. He says, I'm praying for your inward growth. Oh, I want your heart to be filled with love and wisdom. And I'm praying it'll show up on the outside, outward growth. But now I'm praying for upward growth. Because notice where it leads to, to the glory and praise of God. Matter of fact, he even uses gardener terms. Look at it. He says, I want you to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And my parents, we live in the mountains of West Virginia. My parents have a garden every year. I don't stay home long enough to have a garden, but they have a garden. And I was out the other day on the farm, and I went by it. Man, that corn's tall now. Taller than me. Big ears of corn on it. It's growing. I hope to get home later into this week. I hope they have some ready for me when I get there. 
I like it when the fruit gets up tall. Don't you like it when the fruit grows up? And I want you to know, Jesus says, I'm trying to grow you up. And I'm trying to fill you with such fruit. And by the way, you don't produce it, you just bear it. That's what John 15 teaches. You just bear it. You abide in Christ. He produces all the fruit. I'm not talking about you trying harder. Dear Lord, we've had enough meetings where everybody said, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do a little better. No, you're not. You're going to do it for two or three days, fall flat on your face, because you're doing it in your power instead of God's power. Notice verse number 11, being filled. You're being acted on. God is doing it in you as you yield yourself to his control. But now watch the goal of the fruit. When you walk through a garden, when you walk through a garden, who gets bragged on? The gardener. It's always the gardener. Nobody just brags on the flowers. They say, who planted those flowers? Who keeps up this beautiful garden? Watch this, please. When people see your life and walk through the garden of your life, and see these beautiful graces and wonderful things and all oh, the sweet fruit of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what they think of? You don't get the glory for that. All oh, the glory goes to the gardener. That's why in John 15, verse number 8, he says, My Father would be glorified if you'd bear much fruit. I'm simply saying to you tonight, this is where it always starts. It all starts in prayer. Someone once said that every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. And I wonder if we will really have revival this week. Somebody said, well, preacher, you're supposed to say we're going to have it. Well, I don't know. No, we're going to have meetings. But if we have revival, it will not be because of this preacher. Sorry. People think evangelists carried around in their briefcase and they open it out, up, pops out, you know. Not true. And I, I intend to preach the Bible to you. That's the only thing I have to preach is the Bible. That's all I've got to say to you. But friends, I could give my messages and we could have our meetings and not have revival. Whether we have real revival or not, whether something begins in our soul or not, whether God starts something in this Philippi that will go on for eternity, whether something is set in motion of eternal value that we shall meet at the nail-pierced feet of Jesus is dependent on one thing, and that is, will we truly pray? And will we pray what God says pray? Will we ask for what we want or will we ask for what God wants? Will we stop short of asking for peripheral things? surface things, or will we get to the heart of the matter and say, oh God, I want to grow in you. The inner growth, the outer growth, the upward growth, oh dear Lord, get everything out of me that doesn't look like Jesus and form Christ in me. I'd like you to bow your head with me for a moment, if you will. There's so many things I'm looking forward to sharing with you from the Word of God, but this is enough tonight. This is where it all starts. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can help to pray for you in some definite way, please contact us. You may visit us online at enjoyingthejourney.org. 
I would love to hear from you today. I also hope you'll share this message with others who might also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, visit our YouTube channel. And most of all, remember this, tomorrow is the Lord's Day. Sunday is the first day of the week. And every Christian ought to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in their area this Sunday. Thank you so much for listening today to the Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss the Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday. May God bless you and your family and help you to enjoy the journey today.